It's episode 115 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is Forum Specialist Carolyn Jarrett. She's the author of the new book, Surveys That Work, and we discuss getting better results from surveys and putting them to use. Carolyn, thanks so much for being on the program. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. And hey, congrats on the book. And I saw it's just out last month. That's like, what an achievement. It's been quite the struggle. Yeah, I uh, I actually signed up to do the book with Rosenfeld Media um, 11 years ago. Can you believe it? (laughs) And then, you know, it it was it was been I tell the story, actually, of how of why it's taken me quite a long while to uh, write the book. But you know, I, I sum it up by saying I've had some good excuses, some bad excuses, and some inexcusable delays. But uh, got to got to say thanks to Rosenfeld Media for being incredibly patient and supporting me through the process of actually getting it out there. So I'm so so pleased it's done now. I can't tell you how happy I am. I imagine. Yeah. Well, I will. Um... That just makes me feel better about some of my deadlines. If you've got you've got eleven years on me, that's, that's something great. else, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's great. Uh, the, I've been through the book; it looks uh, really well. I noticed also, you know, I was looking at your website, um, and you say there that you've been working on forms since 1994, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's." Uh, I mean, I've been working on websites since then. That's when I uh, kind of made my first website. Uh, but, but, like. What were you working on in the mid '90s? Like, you know, the web was so nascent; we barely even had HTML forms. I imagine there was outside of the web. Were you doing design work on oh. forums or what? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was. I've been working on the web since. Be- well, not before there was the web, but yeah. Um, yeah so um, yeah, I, I love playing a game of top top trumps with my friends. You know, younger friends who are developers because <laughs> um, I uh, I once actually for various reasons filled in a job application form it didn't actually come to anything but but one of the questions was do you understand how the internet works and I wrote yes (laughs) because (laughs) I was working on on x25 boards as a project manager and software dev in the days when we had the cloud before there was the world you know the the web as we know it so um yeah I, I I've worked from actually you know writing stuff that deals with interrupts on computers and uh right in the olden days i was a full stack developer before we had a stack you know i met my husband because we were working in the olden days in a a business that built computer systems mainly for shops and in those days you know i was working on the software my husband in those days was a hardware engineer and the actual computer was put together from chips in the back of the factory you know So well, that is as full stack as you can go, and and um, right to the metal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like uh, you know, it's many many years since I've actually cried because I couldn't work out the pinouts on on a on an EEPROM or something like that. <laughs> you know, so, so things are a, a a lot cooler now. You know, um, we don't you know touch wood. Uh, we haven't seen so many blue screens of death these days, and that kind of thing. But so I was my background yeah. was software engineer, project manager. I started being a project manager very, very early in my career. Like um, after about six months, they observed I had a bit of an aptitude for bossing people around. So <laughs> I was running teams where everybody else was much older than me. But I was the only one who could be bothered with doing any sort of organizational management. Um, and then I ended up working, like I say, working on uh, comms products, X25 and so on. Um, I also ended up 
project managing for a bit on a on a team that were making a multiplex network management um, system. So hmm. it, many of us rarely think about literally who looks after the cables that hmm. runs through the ground. Right. So these were things that manage the cable processes that underpin the internet. You know, who yeah. thinks of actually the massive cables that consolidate the signals and so on. But that 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 was what I was doing for a bit. Um, but then by accident, I ended up going and working um, with, uh, as contract project manager, my, my, the business I was working for sent me over to what we call Rank Xerox in the UK, known as Xerox elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And they had just won a project for digitizing patents for the European Patent Office. So they'd been printing the patents for some years, but they won the project to use optical character recognition techniques to digitize the patents right and so i learned a lot about digitizing stuff in practice in optical character recognition um what we would now probably call artificial intelligence in those days we were talking mainly about neural networks and so on what they could and couldn't do in practice and all that stuff and from there so i actually started working on forms on the first day of the tax year in 1992 so I've been working on forms. I'm just coming up 30 years now. Um, wow. if, I, if I'm spared for another six months, it will be 30 years. Um, and, and that project was, um, I was working for a vendor that was supplying optical optical character recognition systems to what we then called the Inland Revenue, our tax authorities over here. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were supplying these things to the revenue to digitize uh, the idea was that you'd get the forms out of the envelope. They're all submitted on paper in those days, really. You'd, you'd scan the forms and um, the computer would read the forms and deal with them. It all sounds great, doesn't it? And we had one system for one type of form in Manchester and another system for another type of form in Cardiff. And the one in Manchester didn't work at all. And the one in Cardiff worked quite well. Hmm. And it was like, it couldn't be the climate, it's just as bad in both places. You know, it had to be something about the forms. And so I got permission from the revenue to go and investigate what the forms were like, how they were filled in. And that's where I started to get completely fascinated by the challenge of how do you design forms that were filled them incorrectly? Because huh. the ones in Cardiff were filled in by bank clerks and other people. And if they were not filled in perfectly, the staff at the revenue would just send them back. They'd send back 10,000 forms if the handwriting wasn't good enough. So they were all filled in very neatly and tidily. Even then, there were some exceptions and challenges, but by and large, it worked. And the ones in Manchester were filled in dominantly by elderly people who were reclaiming small amounts of tax. And they'd done the best they could. So if they had two bank accounts, they would write, they'd use the little boxes. You picture the little boxes on a form where you're expecting a number like £15.39, and they had two bank accounts, so they write in little tiny letters, they write £23.99 in the top of the box and £15.99 in the bottom of the box. There's no way on earth my computer's dealing with that. But mostly, they'd write, please see letter attached. (laughs) And I can assure you that in 1992, when I was working on this stuff, there was no computer that could do that. And... You know, I can assure you that today, nearly 30 years later, there's no computer that can do that. Right. There's no computer that can get the letter attached and read it and work out what it means and apply it to your form. So that's how I got interested in forms. And I honestly, it's like unbelievable. It's not one off. I'm still fascinated by that challenge. I'm still 
okay, these days it's nearly all, you know, electronic forms, web forms and stuff. Right. Um, I'm still fascinated by those twin challenges. Number one, how do you design the things so they're easy to fill in? But also there's a hidden challenge there, which is how do you actually design an effective and sensible data capture process? You know, how do you actually get information, the right information from the general public or to from specialists or organizations? How do you create a very good, sensible? These days we talk about service design, you know. Right. So how do you actually create really good service design? And these days we talk about interaction design. So, you know, how do you actually make the boxes stuff people can fill in? And these days we talk about content design, which is how do we actually make the question something that people can understand and make sense of? So those are all the things I'm mostly interested in. And then you have to do user research to pull it all together. Um yeah, that's what I do. I've kind of been doing it for a long while, and I still love it. I really love it. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. I'm still fascinated by the web after uh, these three decades as well. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, so you probably remember we first met way, way back when oh, yeah. we were both on the Nielsen Norman tour. So, you know, it's like a million years ago. No, not quite. But it was a different yeah. century. Like, <laughs> it was a different century. Yeah, that's true. It was in the last millennium, just, I think. No. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jacob Nelson and Don Norman had a like uh, consultancy around usability, and and uh, and they we did this tour around the world where, where you know they did I don't I don't know how many there were um, how many of those events were, but they were workshops um, and some you know keynote presentations and things like that. Uh, I think we went to nine different cities and around uh, all different continents. It was it was remarkable. It was amazing. Yeah, it was really amazing. And it, it seems now that we do everything virtually, it just seems sort of incredibly old fashioned, you know, that now we have the opportunity to do stuff like this, you know, which which we couldn't really right. do in those days, you know, so we've we've come a long way. Yeah, no, we certainly have. Um uh, that's fascinating. Going from this idea of like, can we get a printed form into a computer to can we get the form on the computer to, to, uh, to communicate more effectively what needs to come in. Right. Um, and so it's interesting that you have then taken that into surveys, which is a particular method of user research that is largely dependent on forms. I would say it's an application of forms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I accidentally got involved in surveys and I blame Ginny Reddish for this. I mean, you probably know Ginny. She's the world's best content designer and, you know, um, a hero to everyone who knows her. And if, mm. if if people haven't got her book, Letting Go of the Words, then I highly recommend it. You know, it's just a great book. But um, what happened was that in forms, there's really no one's interested in forms, you know, like there's me and about half a dozen other people. But really, no one does much research on them. And so I tried to find all the papers and stuff that I could about them and all the books, and it was hardly any. But the survey methodologists are interested in some of the same questions. So hmm. survey methodologists have done a lot of research on how people answer questions, how do you design questions so that people can answer them accurately, which is really important for forms. You, you don't just want any old answer. You want an accurate answer. So I started reading a lot of um, survey methodology literature, of which there's an absolute vast, vast quantity. I mean, yeah. huge amounts of literature, fantastic quantities of books, um, uh, 
papers are published every month in surveys. There's whole journals devoted to uh, surveys and public opinion quarterly, for example, and um, certainly uh, far in excess of, of you know, several orders of magnitude more than the stuff on forms. And so um, I started to kind of answer questions about surveys because I was picking up this stuff from the literature. And then Ginny said to me, you've got to write a book on surveys. And and if Ginny tells you to do something, it's an honour <laughs> and a privilege. And you just say, yes, Ginny, and you knuckle down. Um, so I did. And, and then that's when I realised that, you know, in my book, I have a seven step process for a survey of which writing the questions and designing the questionnaire are steps three and four. Right. Um, and what I realised then that I didn't know nearly enough about was goals you know why are you doing the survey which is my step one I kind of knew about because goals and the whole business process thing you know why are you doing this process it's that sort of service design thing I was okay on that then there was sampling you know like sampling well we don't do sampling in forms processes because we need to get the result from everyone right we don't think about sampling we don't think about that side of the thing and so I had to kind of get to grips with sampling which was what you know, big, big, big area. So I, I had to read a lot to understand sampling and I had to sort of find out, you know, statistics isn't really my thing. I had to kind of try and understand something about statistics, which was a whole other nightmare. And then, so those four steps, so goals and then sample before you even get to the questions. So questions and questionnaire I was pretty okay on. And then after that, you're like, oh, okay, now I've got to get this questionnaire out to the people. So I borrowed the term from the the market researchers there, and I call that field work. So actually mm. getting the questionnaire out and getting it back again is quite the thing. You can't just, you know, hope for the best. You have to think about those methods. And then when you get it back, the other thing that caused me a lot of um, challenge was one of the hardest things was uh, – what I call responses, which is when you get the data back, what do you do with it? You know, right. so, you know, um, there's coding and, and all of that side. So not that many people. I mean, one of the things I learned about was that the term coding, we talk of coding as writing programs these days, which is, of course, how, how I knew it. You know, I would say I was a coder. Sure. But of course, that term, not everyone knows that that term actually derives from surveys, not the other way around. You know, so. The term coding comes from the days when people had data on something like a census and they needed to actually code it and make use of it. So that's where coding comes from. So the, the survey use of the word coding predates us of writing programs. And indeed, the punch card was developed for the purposes of collating data from surveys, not right. the other way around. Um, so that whole thing of how do you deal with the responses that that was another big area I had to research and then the last bit I talk about reporting you know it's not good enough just to have data we have to find ways of getting those insights to our stakeholders or to other people so that's my final step so I had to learn a lot you know goals was okay sampling I had to learn about questions and questionnaires I was okay Field work, I really had to learn about responses, massive amount of learning curve, reports. I was kind of okay on. So that's my process, and that's what I had to learn. That's a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping people can 
you know, people can find some value in all the bits. I mean, we all have our weaknesses and our strengths. Of course. Don't we? You know, yeah. and, and I'm hoping that um, our colleagues in user experience will come to the book with their own knowledge and, and understanding, but hopefully um, find ways that, that the things I've learned can sort of boost them up a bit. That's my idea anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a bunch of questions about those uh, uh, steps and, and, and the process in general, but let's take a little break first uh, and we'll be right back. And this episode of Presentable is brought to you by Privacy.com. All right, friends, I want to tell you a story. I almost got caught out just last week by a phishing attack. I got this text message saying that a package had been held in customs. Uh, it's trying to be delivered, and I needed to pay duty on it. I get this all the time. I get lots of unexpected packages from the U.S. as part of my job. I don't even think twice about it, so I tapped the link. I started filling in the very accurate-looking form, uh, and I was just about to get my credit card when it occurred to me, hey, wait, I should double-check this. Hold on. Slow down. I checked the URL. Sure enough, it was totally a scam. Like I dodged a bullet, but just barely. So you know what? Like Privacy.com makes a tool to help in situations like this where, where you might get caught out putting a credit card number into a form uh, you didn't ex- that you were expecting something different. Now suddenly somebody's got your data, right? They make it easy to manage your financial life online while keeping your most important information secure by generating virtual credit card numbers. So privacy masks your bank information so you never have to worry about giving out to people you don't know online. This is incredibly important. Like this... Uh, the degree to which we do so much e-commerce, so much uh, shopping and and uh, putting our credit card numbers into so many different websites, use a different credit card number for everyone. It's, it's incredibly easy to do and really important. You can take back control of your payments, decide who can charge your card, how much and how often, and you can close the card, get rid of the number at any time. You can make sure that you're never accidentally billed twice or upgraded to another service without your consent, all of those things. Uh, Privacy has partnered with the good folks at 1Password, an app that I use all the time and love. Uh, You can create, use, and save uh, cards from privacy.com directly within 1Password dashboard. All virtual cards created in 1Password will have the same security benefits as all your other privacy cards, and you can set the spend limits, create single-use, merchant lock cards, whatever you want. So head to privacy.com slash presentable, sign up for an account. If you're a new customer, you'll automatically get $5 in your account to spend on your first purchase, free money. So go to privacy.com slash presentable, sign up now. Our thanks to Privacy for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right. So, you know, it, uh, Caroline, it seems to me that really kind of for better or worse that surveys are... Uh, are the closest most organizations really get to user research. It, you know, it's seldom that I hear an executive or, or a team lead say, hey, before we get started on this new strategy, let's do a contextual inquiry, right? But you know, we'll throw surveys at people all day long, uh, regardless of if anybody qualified in statistics or user research or, or even a, a product experience at all. Um, uh, and the tools, are, you know, it's so simple. Yeah, you just go to SurveyMonkey, you fill in, you know, you write a, write a few questions, you hit submit, you email it to people, you're done. Right, and they make a beautiful report. I don't know. It feels like um, there's a lot of power. There's a lot of opportunity for dangerous misinterpretation of results. It just, uh, uh, I don't know. How do you how do you think about all of that? Like, what what can a like a user re- or user experience practitioner or a designer? What can they do in their organizations to at least try to apply some of what you've researched and understood? to this process that most business people will just fly through it at a whim? 
Well, I think I think a, a, a great deal of yes and, you know, if if an executive comes along and says, we want to do some user research, we're going to do a survey, then we need to celebrate that and say, mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Let's do that user research. Let's do that survey. But that's because they believe that, that surveys are research. You know, they don't know that there's any other methods. They just believe that if you want to find out from your something from users, the survey is the way to reach them. And so one of the things I talk a lot about in my book in the, like, chapter one is to say, is a survey the right thing to do? You right. know, that, for example, a survey is we have quantitative methods and qualitative methods. So quantitative methods get numbers, qualitative methods get sort of richer insights, and they work and work in harmony. And people will often say, well, I'm going to do an exploratory survey to get some richer insights. Well, a survey is a quantitative method. It's it's one that gets a number. It's not your ideal method for getting those richer insights. So I have, you know, I, I did my MBA, so my book had to have a four-way matrix in it, obviously. <laughs> Up so and to the right. Kind of classic four-way matrix to say, you know, let's think of doing some interviews before you do some surveys, because you need to interview people to understand the way they talk about the topics you want. And then that will enable you to write better survey questions. So it's not that you're not doing the survey. It's that you're doing some interviews en route to getting the survey. See, I love that. Now, I haven't explicitly ever kind of thought through that step, this idea of like, uh, could we do some research that informs the questions that we're going to ask? And, and, and as you say, sort of later in the book, when you're like, well, what if you don't have any time, do these things? Like, that could be a very simple, like, we'll just have a couple of, of uh, respondents, we'll just listen to the kind of language, you know, we'll do a quick calls. Like, it doesn't have to be, no, I want to do a process before the process. Uh, I, th- I thought that was wonderful. I put that. You're referring at the end. I have a chapter called "The Least You Can Do." The it's least like, you can, can you do. do I love that. <laughs> yeah, I borrowed that off Steve Krug. You know, Steve has Steve is a great believer in the least you can do. So I said to him, "Can I pinch your trademark phrase? You know, yeah. what's the least you can do?" So I think we can we can be very obsessed with what I call a big honking survey. You know, let's sort sure. of ask everything. And I try and persuade people to do a lot more little light touch surveys. But, yeah, to try and do, like you say, you know, when you say interviews, it doesn't have to be hundreds of people. Right. Like try interviewing three or four and you'll soon find whether you want to do more of those interviews or change to a different method or change to a survey. That's fine. You know, now you've got more um, information. And statistically, that's very powerful as well, because, I've learned through trying to understand something about statistics that we've got your sort of um, p-value probabilistic statistics, and then you've got Bayesian statistics. So Bayesian statistics is about saying, what do we already know and how can we add statistical information to improve what we know? Right. Yeah. So that that thought of, of, of actually saying, well, we don't know anything much about our users or we have some assumptions about our users that are unvalidated. Okay, well, let's try doing a little bit of validation or a little bit of learning about them in some interviews and then see where we are. And then we can see, well, what method do we want to use next? Um, And that is something which is very kind of obvious to us in user experience and user centered design, this whole iteration. But it can be quite new to colleagues who haven't aren't up to their 
eyebrows in UX um, and sort of breaking it down. Well, no, this is just a necessary preparation for the survey. It's not that I'm not going to do a survey, but I'm going to try this other thing and then we'll see where we are. And sometimes they get really into it. So that that's one approach. Another one is to say, well, let's iterate the survey. Let's do a little survey. You know, let's hmm. survey 10 people and practice it all. Um, and that helps as well, because then you can see, well, did we get useful results? Maybe 10 people was enough, you know, maybe 10 people is enough to know that Snorto isn't the great brand name we thought it was. Or <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, you know, it's like, uh, I can't, I can't tell you, but it, it can give you some powerful iteration. And, and then the other thing I really learned from the survey methodologists is that, that they kind of do testing the real really full quality you know 100% survey methodologies do testing in a way that that's fantastic you know it's inspiring to us lot you know so for example if you think about let's say in the states you they have um traditional 10-year censuses every 10 years they start the testing for the next census before the current one is finished you know they're testing all the time there's like 10 more than 10 years of testing goes into a census they test everything and the same in the UK, you know, um, I, I'm like at one point, I remember not the most recent sense, but the one before I looked into it. And they had something like 196 test reports of all sorts of things about the census. Wow. It, it's really so that kind of testing, interviewing, testing, testing the survey, trying it at a small scale, all of that iteration can be real news to our colleagues who just think, oh, boof, I just just do a survey. It will be quick and finished. Mm-hmm. Yeah which is true, but not quite as true as they think, you know. So sort of urging them into doing all the necessary work, really. I I could see that there's a sort of uh, a a connection between the the sort of preparation and the uh, the expectation of uh, accurate results or informative results, let's say. I guess, you know, um, the the difference between accuracy and uh, actual use of the data could be pretty significant as well. But... um, yeah, no, that's interesting. Uh, uh, and then it's that that sort of frequent negotiation of uh, c- we could do this a little better if we had a little more time. And that's you know, just the constant back and forth in every always, always. You know, giving yourself giving yourself an opportunity to iterate. You know, giving giving yourself a chance. And and but you're right as well. It's like timely results are more important than the best results. You know. Sometimes we have to compromise. And yeah, if people do want to know this quickly, well, make it happen. You know, ha- try and get the best you can, you know, out of the thing that out of the survey that's going to happen anyway. Try and just make it as best you can. Yeah. 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 There's a concept that I hadn't heard before. It comes from, I think, a lot of the research that you dug into uh, in the, the discipline of uh, surveys, which is the total survey error. This idea that there are lots and lots of little decisions to make and that uh, making the wrong choice as you build a survey, as you design a survey, add up over time into uh, into deviations from what is true, I guess, one way to put it. Yeah, I mean, we we uh, I, I became really entranced with total survey error and it's become a very powerful core concept within survey methodology as yeah. well which is to as a way of looking at all the different compromises that we make in creating a survey. So the error that I think we're all most familiar with is sampling error. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever you ask a sample of people a question rather than everybody, 
there is some sampling error because the people you ask, even if they're an accurate random sample of everyone, there will be some difference between the sample and the true population value. Yeah. Right. So that's what we know. And that that's the one that all the statistics are around. And, and it's a sort of very attractive error because there's mathematical ways of calculating sampling error. And then there's all the other errors. OK, <laughs> and not one of them is able to be calculated in the same way that sampling error is. So, you know, one, I go through them in the book and I made them into an octopus, which is just a kind of cute ish disney-ish way of trying to say they're all connected right and my survey octopus has got different sort of things to think about and different errors going on i'm not going to go all through them all but i'm just going to think about one of them which is one of them is is lack of validity you know if you ask the wrong question you'll get the wrong answer you know so if you want to find out what do people think of snorto but you ask to actually ask them their favorite color, you've got a complete mismatch. And no matter how good your sample is, right. you have a complete mismatch. And you think, well, that's ridiculous, Caroline. No one would ever make such a massive change. But you'd be amazed, you know, even in forms, the number of people I say to people, why are you asking question A? And they say, well, we want to know answer B. And I say, well, why don't you ask them question B instead? And they say, Oh, you know, <laughs> right, right. It, it, it's 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 really very difficult to really, really refine down the question you really want to ask and the answers you really need. That's not a trivial step. And so that is where you get your validity from. And it's got nothing to do with the sampling, nothing at all, you know. Right. So that's just one example of where you need to think about different sorts of errors that are going on. And in that example, actually, uh, you talk about getting to the most crucial question, right? Which I think is really interesting as a as a uh, almost an exercise of like uh, establishing that we have been through a process of of setting goals, right? And that that we have like a sense of who the audience should be, right? Who we're going to sample from and, and things like that. By like, let's just boil it down. Like, we need to ask what, right? Exactly. And and that came out of a very embarrassing uh, gig I had as a user researcher once where the client was really keen to know what was the what color, you know, what was the color the thing was going to be. You know what I mean? And we set up all this user research. And I knew that they had fundamental misunderstanding of the audience, you know, all the usual stuff we expect in user research. You know, they had the wrong product at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. Right. And so I did all this research and I found out that they had the wrong product at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. And, and I forgot to ask the question about the color. I just forgot. So I'd been commissioned to find out about the color and I failed to find out about it because I knew it was irrelevant. But that was what I was commissioned to ask. Do you know what I mean? Right. And so I started to really think, you know, I need to find out what the client thinks is the most crucial question even if that's not a useful research question, or even if it's irrelevant to the problem, I still need to find that out. So I've had in mind the idea of what's the most crucial question. And it's it's whether that question is relevant to users or not is a completely different matter. So I contrast the most crucial question with the user's burning issue. And if those things are far apart, you might need to bring them together. But really, 
doing the work, particularly for those of us who are consultants or in a sort of consultant-ish role within our organizations, to do the work with your stakeholders or even yourself, you know, yeah. if you're doing something for yourself. I mean, for example, coming back to Steve Krug, I happened to do some work with him and uh, he's working with his son, Harry Krug, who's now a user experience consultant himself. Huh. And um, Harry had had the difficult gig of working with his dad who wanted his website redesigned. And so working with them on what's your most crucial question was actually quite challenging for them, you know, and they're up to their ears in user experience, almost, you know, Steve almost defined the term usability for many of us. So it was interesting how yeah. even amongst ourselves, we can struggle with really refining what we want to know today to make a decision. And what do we need to know today? We might actually say, well, we need to know this, this and this. Well, today I need to know that, but tomorrow I need to know something else. Okay, leave the tomorrow something else for tomorrow. Ask the question you need today. You know, you don't have to have just one go at it. But that's really um can be surprisingly valuable to work with clients and yourself on that, you know, actually drilling into that most crucial question. And it also really does illustrate uh, a lot of the value of, of consulting, of people coming from the outside into an organization, um, uh, not caught up in the day-to-day -day and the jargon and all of the, um, the norms and assumption and just say, I remember in my days in consulting, being able to say like, just teach it to me like I'm five, like just really just explain it to me. Um, and then I can yeah. just keep asking why, and I can, it doesn't take very many whys to get to, to stump everybody about what we're doing. Right. No, absolutely. And I think also, um, many of us, I, I mean, I've been consultant for years and, and you have too, but many of my colleagues who are permanent members of staff, um, in the organizations they work in still find themselves sort of in a consultancy sure. role with their colleagues. Yeah. So I think some of those skills that we've been forced to develop as consultants, they've been sometimes almost a little surprised that they need to develop that consultancy right. mindset a bit as well to bring colleagues along the road with them. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we do this sort of thing and write books really is to share some of the stuff we've sort of painfully learned through our mistakes. <laughs> so <laughs> I said to younger colleagues, you know, I harp on about the old days, not, not because that, because I want you to make fresh new mistakes, not the same boring old ones. Exactly. That's right. that's right. We're, even if we're destined to repeat history, we can at least yeah, try, right? right? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, let's, take a, let's take another quick break. We'll be right back. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at Pingdom from SolarWinds. Uh, today's internet users obviously expect a fast user experience, no matter how targeted your marketing content or how sleek your website is. They'll bounce if a page is loading too slowly. Uh, but with real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover how website performance affects your visitor's experience. So you can take action before your business is impacted. And it's as low as $10 a month. So uh, whether your visitors are all over the world or across browsers, devices, and platforms, Pingdom helps you identify the bottlenecks helps you troubleshoot performance, helps you make informed optimizations. Real user monitoring is an event-based solution, so it's built for scalability, and that means you can monitor millions of page views, not just sample data, and do it at an affordable price. Get live website performance visibility today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM. Right now, 30-day free trial, no credit card required. Then, if you're ready to buy, use the code PRESENTABLE at checkout. You get awesome 30% off your first invoice. So thanks, Pingdom, 
from SolarWinds for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right. So um, why don't we talk just a little bit about uh, maybe some of the tools that we could use to help us oh. kind of figure out uh, how to make good surveys, how to get them out in front of people, how to uh, interpret the results and reports and all of that. What have you been thinking about there? Uh, it, it's such a good question. And it's one I get asked a lot. You know, in some ways, I think it's my most free. I've got two really frequently asked questions. One of them is, uh, how many points on a Likert scale, which I'm not going to try and answer now. I'm going to say, hey, read the book on that one. And then another one is, you know, what's the best survey tool? And yeah. it's such a difficult question to answer because it's so contextual about what tools do you have available to you? Which ones are you familiar with? Which tools are there? You know, we were just, uh, you know, for example, I think the most recent survey I happened to do myself was a well-known tool, which is called SurveyMonkey. And it was fine for what I needed to do. And um, for my particular thing, the pricing was okay because a lot of the pricing very much depends on how you're doing the survey, what tool, what features you need in the right. tool. Um, it happened that, that that particular tool's pricing matched my price point. Uh, the accessibility isn't great, which is one of the biggest problems with all these tools, that the accessibility of the questionnaires can be poor. And then the accessibility of the tool itself can be terrible, mm. which is could be very challenging if you're actually working with a colleague who has access needs themselves. You know, So sometimes yep. I'm working with someone who has their own access needs and they need to use the tool. So with all of those things, are you serving? It's, it's all right not endorsing them i'm just saying and then like not two days ago i got an email saying that survey monkeys changed its name to something else so i can't even say oh that's one i've used because they've now changed their name to something else so these things change all oh. the time yeah momentous um, hmm. you know what so it's like i had ah, no idea i can say you know on that day five years ago i used survey monkey and it was fine but what survey monkeys like today i have no idea and it's not even called that anymore <laughs> i'm not saying good or bad about it i'm just saying my experience from the last time you used it to today right. might not be relevant to you so i'm in a very difficult position and i've been very disappointed at how little um, the survey tool vendors have invested in accessibility for people who run surveys. You know, it's 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 unbelievable. I have know? no idea. I you know, in that um, there's going to be a population uh, that you're trying to reach that's not going to be able to actually complete the forms to to submit the results. Like that's significant. No, no, it's worse than that. You know, some question types. You know, for example. One of the survey tool vendors actually has a list to say, you know, we offer, I can't remember, I'm just going to randomly say, we offer 75 question types yeah, and yeah. only 30 of them are accessible, <laughs> right? Well, that's easy. Don't use the other 30. That's straightforward. So we have the problem of can the per the people we want to answer, what I call the defined group of people, can people with disabilities in our defined group actually answer the questionnaire? That's one level of accessibility that some of the vendors are paying attention to. I'm talking about another level of accessibility, which is if I'm working with a colleague who happens to be blind, mm -hmm. can that colleague use the tool themselves or will they rely on me interacting with the tool? Right. Right? Yep. I have not yet found any vendor where they are actually telling me 
yes, we've tested our tool with colleagues with disabilities. Right. Yeah. Which is terrifying. Absolutely. You know? And yeah. illegal, so far as I can tell. You know, it's like, no, you can't be doing that. You can't put tools out for workplace use, which are that inaccessible. Right. What are you playing at? And yet that seems to be where we're at. So that's one of the reasons, you know. Um, so I included a spotlight in my in my book where uh, some folks at Government Digital Service, where I used to work for a while, um, did a survey of they wanted to find out what access technologies people use to access the UK government website, gov.uk. So it had to be a survey that was could be answered by people sure. who use access technologies. And so um, they reported there how difficult they found it to find that tool. And one of the people who was part of my case study, Chris Moore, is really a great guy. I mean, both of them, Alistair Duggan, very well known as a, an accessibility expert in this country. Chris Moore also. Um, and Chris Moore happens himself to be deaf and blind. So he was, you know, could speak from personal experience. And, mm -hmm. and they found something that kind of worked. And they offered ways for people who couldn't use the um, online survey to uh, respond to their questions in other ways. So they had a sort of two-pronged approach. But it just like really really tools vendors can you get your act together and start paying proper attention to accessibility right. you know and and um i've had vendors sort of say well well what do you mean a colleague and i say yeah i work with people who use screen readers themselves as designers ooh you yeah know, never thought of that and then it, and then we wonder why people with disabilities struggle to get jobs because we're putting these awful barriers in their way right um, so it's a sort of I hope to give people advice on tools. But what I ended up doing in the book was to say not so much because of this problem of the tools change all the time and they change names. And I hope very much hope they'll change for the better and start to be um, more accessible and easier to use. What I did instead was I included a bunch of questions that people might want to ask, you know, because the first thing we should probably all do is if we work in largish organizations is to say well is there a tool we already have because you'd be surprised at most large organizations already have through their market research insight department right. they may have a subscription to one of the really powerful full function tools and they may even be willing to help you put your survey together in which case say great and work with them you know yeah don't, don't go out trying to do all the research yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or it might be that you've got devs on hand who would love nothing more than making you a tool that's fit ideally for your audience, in which case, say great to them as well. Sure, sure. And I guess it has a little bit to do with what you were referring to as fieldwork, with how yeah. are you going to capture? Like, is this something that you want to present uh, to people who are using your product? Or is this something that just anybody in the outside world should be able to come to, and maybe you'll use advertising to get them there or emails or whatever. Right. So yeah, that would depend that, that that would inform the tool choice as well. Oh, yeah. Very, very much, very much. So, and you know what, the other thing is familiarity with the tool, you know, I mean, Microsoft word, I love Microsoft word. I've used it every day for decades but it is the most brutal tool. I don't hear that uh, sentiment very often, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> it, 
it's the most brutal tool for forms or cert questionnaire design. Sure. You know, it's horrendous. But even then, I've put together questionnaires in Microsoft Word for organizations, little tiny, like a charity, where the only tool everyone knew how to use was Word. It's like, okay, I'm going to suck it up and have a go, you know. Right. So you can, you can make almost anything work. Um, I I can't, honestly, I just can't recommend Microsoft Word as a questionnaire design tool. But if that's what you and the people you're working with know, then you can do it. You yep. can. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Well, this has been super informative. Uh, very insightful. I really appreciate that. Um, congrats again on, on getting the book out. Uh, I'll put a link um, in the show notes to uh, to the page on Rosenfeld Media where people can uh, buy and download or, or even get a print version of, of the book. Uh, you also have a sample chapter I saw on your website. So I'll put a link to that as well so people get a get a sense uh, of it. Uh, where, where else? Where else shall we send people? Well, I think those are the two main ones, really. I mean, um, you know, as you know, we always urge people to buy the book directly from the publisher. And the yeah. bonus from doing that is if you buy a paper copy, you get the free ebook, which you, you don't from other places. And um, clearly, I would urge if you want to, to support your local independent bookshop, because um, those people deserve your support. And maybe you might pay you know, a pound or a dollar two more, but hey, it helps to keep reading alive in our yep. population. And then, you know, I have to say, if you do want to, uh, if you do happen to feel that Amazon is the right place for you to buy, by all means do so. But the biggest compliment anyone can pay an author is actually to leave a review on Amazon. So if anyone felt able to drop me a review on Amazon, even if it's just a couple of words, that is just such a kind thing to do for an author. So I'd really ask people to do that if they can bear to. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great advice. Uh, it also helps when people leave reviews in iTunes for podcasts. I'm just saying, but you know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And please drop those reviews on the, uh, on the iTunes for the podcast as well. That would be a very, very cool thing to do. That's great. That's great. Well, I'll put links to all your social media. I think your website is effermarks.com. Uh, co.uk get people it's over effort, there yeah, yeah. it's effortmark.co.uk got it, got yeah. it. i'll get a link to yeah. all of that so that, uh, everybody can find out some of your great writing and some of your other presentations that you've given so uh carolyn thanks so much for being on the show oh it was an absolute pleasure jeff thank you very much for letting me uh rabbit on about all the things i'm so passionate about you bet and that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean, and this was Presentable.